invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2. <clears throat> and from verse 14, I'll read one verse. No, read two verses. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And then I'll read verse 24. You see, that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Okay, does everyone in the room know what a presbytery meeting is? Do we all know what a presbytery meeting is? Well, if you don't, a presbytery meeting is one of the most fascinating and exciting things that can go on. It's where a number of ministers and a number of elders get together and they discuss matters of the church. I suppose you could say a presbytery is like a, is the ruling body or the governing body of the church. Something like that. Well, on Tuesday, I jumped on a train and I headed up to Edinburgh because we had a presbytery meeting. And there wasn't all that much on the agenda. But there was one very crucial item that the presbytery had to deal with. Because we had an application from a guy, an application from a young bloke who was applying to become a Free Church of Scotland minister. That was the crucial thing in the presbytery agenda. There was this guy, and he was applying to become a ministry student. So, what presbytery had to do is we had to assess the guy. We had to assess his application form. And we had to go through that in detail. And that was the business, really, on, on, on Tuesday. We had to work out whether this guy was a suitable candidate. You know, did this guy live out his faith? That was really what we were, we were struggling with. And to do that, you know, part of the form that the guy had to fill in, or part of his application form, was from his Kirk session. It was from the church leadership of his congregation. And what we were wanting to hear from them was how exactly did this guy live out his faith? You see what I mean? You know, he's applying for ministry. Did, did this guy in his life, did he demonstrate a kind of a, a concern for the needy and concern for the poor? Was that the sort of guy he was? He was applying for ministry. Did this guy demonstrate a concern for the salvation of people who are lost and perishing. Is that what this guy was like? How did his faith in Christ affect his behavior? Got it? So that's the guy. That's presbytery, and that's this application for ministry. But really, it's the same concern that James has got here in the section of Scripture. You see, James is writing here about faith and he's writing about deeds and what he's doing is he's telling you he's telling me he's telling all his readers the way in which genuine faith can be recognized that's what he's doing 
That's the theme tonight. The way in which genuine faith, real faith, proper trust in Christ, the way in which that can be recognised. So, what we'll do tonight, God willing, is we will examine these verses, we will try and unpack them, and yeah, we're going to look at three points. But, before we do that, can I say something to you? Tonight, concern yourself with yourself. Okay? Concern yourself with yourself. You know, we're going to be looking at genuine, sincere faith. So don't be, don't tonight be thinking about the person sitting next to you. Or don't be thinking about somebody else in the congregation. Don't even think about a, a family member who seems lost and far away from Jesus Christ or anything like that. Tonight, concern yourself with yourself. And let's, all of us, every one of us, let's ask ourselves the very same question. Is my faith genuine? Is my faith genuine? Let's consider our first point tonight. This is point number one, the first point. And it is a main thesis concerning genuine faith. <clears throat> a main thesis or a, a main point concerning genuine faith. Okay, folks, you'd all agree, I'm sure, that the Bible contains some controversial Material, doesn't it? Some controversial teaching. You know, we just need to think about the, the current debate about uh, homosexuality and homo homosexual marriage and what the Bible says about that to see, well, it's, it's kind of controversial, certainly in society. Or even this morning, you can see we looked at something in the Bible that's maybe a bit controversial, the, the difference in gender roles, the difference in the sexes, another potentially at least controversial issue. But you see, neither of those two, nothing compares with the controversy of these verses we've read. These, these words in James chapter 2, these are some of the most controversial verses that you will get in the whole of Scripture. Now, why is that? Well, do you remember the, the introductory sermon that we had in James? Do you remember? That was a while ago, it seems. But when we looked at that, we saw that, that people argue that what James writes in this letter, it is at variance with other parts of the Bible. You know, people are going to say that these verses that Paul so eloquently uh, read out earlier on, these verses say the opposite to what the Apostle Paul says in his letters. Now, that's the charge against this section of Scripture. So, is it the case? What do you think? Are James and Paul contradictory? Well, let's take the bull by the horns tonight and let's try and address that. Because this, 
you know, this isn't an eighty-fairy thing. You know, it's not a, a, it's not a sort of, you know, just a theological debate, you know, between James and Paul. See this stuff that we'll look at tonight? It has genuinely caused a lot of Christians problems. You know, this passage in Scripture here, and it's apparent controversy with, with Paul, or it's apparent contradiction with Paul, that's caused confusion, and that has caused genuine bewilderment. And occasions it has caused despair. So, we, we can't skirt the issue. Let's address it. And we're going we're gonna to address this. And we're going to do so by thinking about three words. Okay? We're going to think about the apparent contradiction between James and Paul by looking at three words. And we're going to think about how James uses the word, how Paul uses the word, and whether they are contradictory. So I kind of feel like I'm playing charades or charades or whatever it's called. But three words. First word, and it is the word faith. The word faith. So how does Paul use faith? How does James use faith here? And are they contradictory? Well, how does, how does Paul, in his epistles, how does he use the word faith? When Paul, in any of his letters, when he talks about faith, what's he talking about? Guess what? He's talking about faith. It is really straightforward. When Paul talks, let's say in Colossians 1, when he says that he has heard of the Colossians' faith, do you know what he's saying? He's heard of their faith. He's heard that they trust in Jesus Christ. It is very straightforward. For Paul, faith means faith. Okay, what about James? Is it the same for James here? Does he use faith in the same way? You know, in this section, when he says, faith without deeds is dead, is he saying, is he saying that trust, genuine trust in Jesus Christ is dead without deeds? Is he saying that? He's not saying it. Because look at verse 14. See, verse 14, it has to shape the whole way that we read this section of Scripture. Verse 14 is the key. Look what it says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but no deeds? Can can faith save him? Do you see it? He's not saying that... A a sincere, genuine trust in Jesus Christ is dead without works. He's saying a claim of faith in Jesus Christ is dead without works. A claim of faith is dead. A claim of faith is useless unless it is accompanied by observable works. So he uses faith. You following me? He uses faith differently to the way that Paul uses it. That was the first word. Second word. Ready for it? The second word is works. So what does Paul mean when he talks about works? Well, folks, when Paul's talking about works, 
He's generally speaking out against the false idea that we can be saved by works. He's speaking out against the idea, you know, the idea that we can somehow, by, I don't know, coming to church or by, by, I don't know, reading the Bible now again, maybe giving a little bit of money to dwelling places now and again. Paul's speaking out against the idea that that, those works, are sufficient to attain salvation. But again, what we see here in chapter 2 is that James uses the word differently to Paul. You know, when James, in chapter 2, in those verses that have just been read, when James talks about works, he's not talking about sort of feeble, pathetic, ineffectual attempts to earn our salvation. When James talks about works, get this. He is talking about the inevitable flow of action that should come from a heart that is changed by Jesus Christ. That's what James is talking about. He's not talking about useless efforts to try and work toward pleasing God. He's talking about inevitable action that springs from, that's prompted by the fact that we are saved by Jesus Christ. Do you know what the marvellous thing is? The great thing? Paul agrees entirely with him. Remember we said that a couple of weeks ago. It's that introductory sermon again. We noted that James writes his letter before Paul writes his. James writes first. And do you know what Paul says when he gets round to writing his letters? He says in Ephesians 2, We have been saved by faith, not by works so that no one can boast. Then he says this. Paul says, We are created in Christ. Why? We are created in Christ to do good works. Do you see it? Paul and James, they're not contrasting each other they're not opposing each other Paul and James are speaking of the same wonderful glorious beautiful gospel they are both Christ centered and they are both concerned for his glory and you know what we see that all come together in a third word the third word what have we had we've had faith We've had works, and then we come to the difficult one. We come to justification. And I suppose this is where we see the apparent contradiction most clearly. Because Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome. And he says in Romans 3 that a person is justified by Justified by faith. And what did James say? In that verse that I read out, in verse 24, what did James say? Paul said we're justified by faith alone. James says in verse 24, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So that sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like they're opposing each other, are they? 
Well, no, they're not. When Paul talks about justification, Paul is talking about us through faith being made righteous before God. That's justification, our standing before God as righteous through Christ. But guess what? James is not using the word in the same way. When he says we are justified by what we do rather than by faith alone, he means that we are seen to be justified by what we do. He's he's agreeing with Paul. He's saying, you're right, you know, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. But we are seen to be righteous. We are seen by other people as being justified by our works, by our actions, and by our deeds. So justification is used differently. So you've got it. Three words. But why bother with that? Why bother going through all those three words? Why bother with all of that? Well, we said a moment ago, this has caused problems. This has shaken the faith of believers. A misunderstanding of these verses. So that's one reason. But I'll give you another one. Why do we go through those three words? Because... By doing that, by wrestling with this apparent contradiction between Paul and James, James's main point in this section becomes all the more clear. By wrestling with this contradiction, we see James's main thesis come to the fore. So can I ask you, friends, do you think that your faith is genuine. Tonight, do you think that your faith is genuine? Well, if so, James, that faith will be observable. That faith will be demonstrated by your works. That is his main thesis. Okay, let's move on. We've seen this main thesis, we've seen the contradiction. Let's think about a second point, and that is the point number two. A profession of faith is not necessarily genuine faith. I better pause there, because if you're taking notes, that's quite a lengthy title to give a point. A profession of faith is not necessarily genuine faith. Right, now. I was reading a cracking story this week. Uh, it was a story of a family who were going off on their summer holiday and they were going, they were flying out to Turkey. And they got to Turkey and they arrived at the airport passport control. Imagine it. In Turkey, the airport passport control. And then they realised that what they handed over to the Turkish authorities 
was not actually the passport uh, for their daughter. That in their hurry to get out of the house, instead of picking up what they thought was their daughter's passport, they picked up a toy passport that had come free uh, with one of their daughter's teddy bears. And here they were, you know, imagine it. In Turkish passport control, and they have handed over a Build-A-Bear unicorn passport as verification of their daughter's identity. And that was clearly a claim of identity that wasn't the case. It's a claim of identity that is obviously not the case. And that's what James talks about in what is the second major section here. You know, the first section, we've seen that main thesis. You know, we see genuine faith by its fruits. But he moves on, he's got a second section here. And that's verses 18 and 19. If your Bibles are open, just keep an eye on that. Verses 18 and 19, and you'll see what is quite a controversial claim. James makes a controversial claim. Verse 19, effectively what he's saying is that a belief in God is not sufficient for salvation. Now make sure you hear me correctly here. I could get myself into a lot of trouble. A belief in God is not sufficient for salvation. Look at verse 19. Look at it. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good! Good even the demons believe that and shudder. You believe that there's there's one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. And what he's got in mind there, you know when he's he's talking about you believe in one God? He's talking about what's called the Jewish Shema. You know, it's that, that Jewish expression critical to Judaism from Deuteronomy where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And James is saying, you believe that. Well, that's just cracking. You believe that? That's, that's, that's great. That is wonderful. But you see, if there are no accompanying works, if there are if there is no demonstration of that belief, then, then that claim of identity, that claim of belief, that profession of faith, well, it is useless. It is no proof of identity whatsoever. No proof of genuine faith. And then he goes on to make a dramatic statement. I think it's a dramatic statement, certainly. The end of the verse, verse 19. He says that even demons believe. He says that even demons believe in God. He's right, isn't he? You know, surely, you know, most of you are, are out in our Sunday morning services. You know, surely... We, We've seen that in Genesis 3. That the demons, that the devil, that Satan believes in God. He believes in God. 
He believes in Christ. He believes in the plan of salvation. He believes that the Lord is one. But it is not saving faith. It is not saving faith. The demons believe in God, but they're not saved. And folks, James's main point here in this section is surely one that people in churches in Britain, countless people, hundreds of people, thousands of people, really need to hear. Because what James is saying is that you can call yourself a Christian and you can understand Christianity and you ain't saved. You know, he's saying, you know, tonight you can love theology but not love God. And he's saying you can, you can love Calvin, let's say, or love Chesterton or, or love Don Carson and not love Christ. He's saying that you can profess faith in Jesus. He's saying that you can understand everything about the plan of salvation, but your feet, your feet are still standing within the gates of hell. I'm guessing that everyone in here tonight could be wrong. I'm guessing that everyone in here tonight believes in the existence of God. You believe in the existence of God? Well, know this. Know that that is not enough. It is simply not enough. Intellectual assent to the plan of salvation is absolutely insignificant you need to repent you need to believe in Jesus Christ it's not about knowing about Jesus it's knowing him and knowing him as the Lord and the Savior and the King of your life profession of faith intellectual assent intellectual understanding A proclamation that you're a Christian ain't enough. It's insufficient for genuine faith. Okay, so what have we seen? We've seen a main thesis, a main part of this, this works that that show genuine faith. And then we've seen the definition of faith isn't necessarily genuine faith. Right, we're going to close with a third point. And that is... James gives two examples of genuine faith. Okay, two examples of genuine faith. So I was on the on the tube quite recently, and a man comes on, and it's a very very busy tube as it tends to be. And the poor guy, he accidentally stood on the toe of a woman as he was as as he was coming at the train. Man alive, did this woman let him know about this? She unleashed all her commuter fury 
on onto this guy, and I will not repeat uh, everything that she said, but she did call the guy an idiot, an idiot, which I thought was pretty harsh considering what, what had happened. But it certainly got the guy's attention. And James does the same thing. In the final section, verse 20, he calls his reader, see that, what does he say? A foolish man. He calls his reader a foolish man. And our first reading, we might think, well, that sounds, that sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? Foolish man. That sounds pretty harsh language. But then think about, think about what he's talking about here. Think about his subject. He's talking about genuine faith. He's talking about salvation. And when we think about it in those terms, we realize it's not harsh language. It's language he's using to grab our attention. It's language to draw us in. So what does he see? How, folks, how does he finish section? Well, he gives us two examples. They are examples of genuine faith. They are examples of faith in action. Right. First one's Abraham. And unsurprisingly, on first reading, it sounds like James is contradicting Paul. Now, Paul says, he's writing to Rome again, he says in chapter 4, he's writing about Abraham. And he says that Abraham was considered righteous for his faith. Remember that. Abraham considered righteous for his faith. What does James say in verse 21? James says in verse 21, Abraham was considered righteous for what he did. Now, is that contradictory? Well, it's not. James is saying that that episode with Isaac. You remember that? We, we looked at that just a couple of months ago, that whole episode with Abraham and Isaac. Well, James is saying that episode was a demonstration of Abraham's faith. You see, when Paul states that Abraham was considered righteous by faith, he's quoting Genesis 15. So what's happening here with James is that James is saying, you're right, Paul. You know, that's Genesis 15. That's when Abraham was considered righteous. But you see, much, much later on with Isaac, way much later on into Genesis 22, that's when we see that righteousness, that's when we see it displayed. James is saying that the events with Isaac were events, were, were works that naturally flowed from that existing righteousness by faith. It was genuine faith in action. So we've had Abraham. Then what happens? Well, he turns his attention to Rahab. Do you know who Rahab is? Do you know who Rahab was? I'm sure you do. Rahab was a prostitute. She was the woman 
in the book of Joshua, who hid the spies, hid the people of God, sent off their pursuers in the opposite direction. So what's James mentioning her for here? Well, it's exactly the same thing as Abraham. He's saying, here is a, here's a woman with existing faith, and here, in this uh, protection of the spies, here is that faith, that precious faith, in action. And friends, as we close tonight, as we end, think about the difference between the two examples. Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, a man. Rahab, a woman. Abraham's rich. Rahab's poor. Abraham's an honourable and a respected man. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was a Jew. Rahab, a Gentile. Do you see the point that James is making? He's saying it don't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It does not matter what you have done in your life. It doesn't matter if you are a drunkard or a gambler or a thief or a murderer. James is saying what matters is that you have genuine, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So do you have that? Is your faith tonight, is it a genuine faith? Well, let not your faith be just an intellectual appreciation of God and what he's done. Tonight, cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. I beg you to do that. Cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, then... Well, you will not be called foolish by Scripture. Instead, you will be called the same thing that Abraham is called in this portion of Scripture. If you cast yourself on the mercy of Christ, you will be called a friend Isn't that incredible? A friend of God. Is your faith genuine? I pray, I hope that it is. Let's pray.